If you would again uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 26. And we will be reading uh, verses 1 through 33. Continuing our study in Genesis. Genesis chapter 26, starting in verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading of it. Now there was a famine in the land, beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esk. Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called it Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called it Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am, the Lord, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. 
And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So we made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged vows. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and he said, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. The reminder of the promises, the covenant promises that were made to Abraham, repeated now to Isaac. We pray, O God, as we consider this, we consider the promises you've made to all of your people. Give us ears to hear. May we um, grow in our knowledge, understanding of our Savior Jesus. May we grow in our love for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. And for his sake. Amen. Well, as Christians, we walk in the blessed shade of God's promises. In Christ, we are ensured eternal life. By his death and resurrection, we have been rescued from bondage to sin. We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. And we've been transferred into the kingdom of the Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our Savior Jesus promised that He would be with us to the end of the age. He gave to us the promise of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that we would inherit the kingdom. And so even as we face various trials and various difficulties in life, we can count those all joy, trusting and resting in our faithful Savior and our God. The Christian life is a life of walking in hope, by faith, trusting God. This is a lesson which Isaac was to learn. And this is a lesson that you and I are to learn as well. In our present text, Isaac was reminded of the promises which had been given to his father, to Abraham. And we, as the readers, are alerted to this by the continual mention of the patriarch's name. In the previous chapter, we learned of the twins, Jacob and Esau, who were born. Here we're taken back in time some, though, and shown what these two were fighting over. Isaac was the inheritor of the promises and the blessings of Abraham, the land, the the blessings of offspring, and the blessings which would come to all of the nations. Jacob was the chosen of God to inherit those same promises. And now these pro- those same promises, those same blessings which had been given to Abraham are again here repeated almost verbatim to Isaac 
with the, with the repetition of two expressions we see over and over again. Blessings and also Abraham's name. You'll see Abraham mentioned over and over. In many respects, Isaac is experiencing a, a, a repeat of the experiences of his father. Beginning even with a famine and continuing through the movements and struggles, even this treaty with the Philistines, even the mistakes of Abraham. Most importantly, though, are the promises made to Abraham, which are repeated. Not just once, but twice in our present passage. So what we are to learn is that God's promises are sure. He is establishing His people so that they can be a blessing to all of the nations. To that point, nothing has changed. For God's promises remain sure. And so we begin uh, our present study in verse 1, chapter 26 in Genesis. And here we are told of a famine in the land. But this famine is not to be confused with the famine which Abraham had experienced and which led to him sojourning down to Egypt. In fact, uh, in some ways, reminding us that it's not that same famine also connects us to that. This was a new famine. And it illustrates the continued struggle which the people of God would experience. This famine falls under the category of the providences of God. God's providence. Even as the people of God are His special possession, this does not mean that you and I are immune to the difficulties of life, struggles of life. Now sometimes we think that way, don't we? We think, well, I mean, Lord, it's me, remember? I'm not supposed to. That's for other people. No, even God's people suffer. We're not immune. Isaac and his family were to face many trials and difficulties, but these were opportunities for God to display His glorious power in perfecting His people and in destroying His enemies. And so since there was a famine, Isaac, seeing the need for suitable water and food sources, he begins to head south. And really, he's probably doing what his father had done. He was heading towards Egypt. And we see he comes to Gerar. And then verse 2, we see this. The Lord appeared to him in a vision. He was not to go to Egypt. He was not to do as his father had done. Now, of course, Egypt, why do you go to Egypt? Egypt was the traditional source of food in times of famine. This is why Abraham had gone down there, after all. The Nile River provides an abundance of food and water, even where there is a famine. But Isaac wasn't to do that. He wasn't to go to Egypt. Instead, he was to sojourn in the land. He was to remain in the land as a resident alien, as it were. Now why? Why was Isaac to not go to Egypt? Why does the Lord want him to remain? Because, again, Egypt has an abundance of food and water for his livestock. Well, the reason was because this was the land which was to be given to his offspring. This was the place of inheritance. And God was going to display His power in providing for His people, even during a great famine, even while there's great need. Isaac was to be obedient to the Lord. He was to trust in the Lord. He would trust that the Lord would provide for him and that he will then experience the blessings from the Lord. Now again, we note 
the patriarchal promises here repeated, establishing protection and prosperity to Isaac. God promised him, I will be with you. I will give you these lands. I will give these to your offspring. So Isaac was to remain in Gerar, in the Negev. That this is the southern portion of Canaan. He was not to go any further south. He was a sojourn in this place. But, uh, if you know anything about geography of uh, the Holy Land, of the Negev, this is a very barren place. This is a desert place. It's very arid. To remain there during a famine, well, you must really trust in the Lord. The Lord must provide. There's really no good reason to remain there otherwise. And this land was occupied. It was ruled by another nation. To remain there is to rest in the promises of God. God promises, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And in your offspring all the nations shall be blessed. The repetition of the promises to give the land, to multiply his offspring, then provides the basis for the final blessing, or the final promise rather, that through, all, through you all the nations will be blessed. Through the blessings which God will bestow on his covenant people will come the blessings which will impact all the nations, namely the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these promises come, come, come to pass in God's providence. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham had obeyed God. God blessed Abraham. Now Isaac was to be obedient. You know, it would be very easy to think, you know, the solution to my problem really is just to go to Egypt. Right? I know there's food there. But here... God is saying, no, Abraham obeyed me and I provided for him. And you too must obey me. Now this does bring up a question. And that is, what charge, commandment, statute, and law was Abraham obedient to? Now what we know is the law, that is to say the Mosaic law, does not come until much later at Sinai. So what law is being referred to? Was there some aspect of the law that had been revealed to Abraham? Certainly there was a law written on his heart. Abraham had something of the moral law. In addition, God had given him charges and commandments at various times. God told him to do certain things. We can say that uh, when God told him to do something, like you know, he told him to go to the land. And he did. He told him to remain in the land. And he did. He told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham was obedient Whatever charges, commandments, statutes, or laws which God had given to Abraham, Abraham was obedient to them, making him the ideal then for Israel. Now, of course, we've already looked at Abraham. We know he wasn't perfect. In fact, Abraham fails a lot. And yet God says he was obedient. You see, when the people of God obey the commandments of God, there are good things which come about. God's blessings. And when the people of God disobey disobey the commandments of God, well, then there's bad things which come about. There are blessings and curses. Abraham's obedience, though, is an obedience of faith. 
He believed God. He trusted in the Lord. This is, by the way, the very thing which all believers are to do. We are to believe God in His promises. Abraham trusted in the promises of God. And the Christian is to be obedient to the Lord because we are grateful for the salvation which is ours in Christ. It's not our obedience which saves us. Abraham wasn't saved by his obedience. He was blessed, though. Obedience doesn't save any more than obedience saved Abraham. We are obedient because we love the Lord, and we love the Lord because He first loved us. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, and so he walked by faith with the Lord. And so as he did, the Lord used that to accomplish his will. In his providence, he used Abraham's obedience to do what God had, had willed to come to pass, to bring about his purposes. The person of faith does not live by the law, but rather the, but keeps the law in gratitude to God because he loves the Lord. Isaac was to walk in the same way. He was to walk by faith as Abraham had done. So when the people of God follow after God, keeping His commandments, summarizes loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, there are also blessings which come to you as well. And so just as Abraham before him, Isaac was to live in obedience. He was to trust in God. In this case, he was to sojourn in the land. The very thing which, you know, humanly speaking, doesn't make any sense. And yet he was to remain there as an alien, a resident alien. He was not to go to Egypt. He was not to go there where there was hope of food. He was to trust for God's provision. And so he does. He settles in Gerar. But it's not actually very long before troubles come to him. In a very similar fashion as it happened to his father, as the men of the place began to inquire about his beautiful wife, Rebekah. Much like his father, Isaac decided that, it, that a lie was better than the truth. As the great philosopher Yogi Berra said, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> Consider again that Isaac had been promised provision and protection from, from God. You know, and he's obedient. He stays in the land. He believes God, but apparently in his mind, this was still not enough. Not enough to spare his life because of his beautiful wife. And so he lies about his relationship to his wife, telling the men of the place, she's my sister. He's afraid that they will kill him. And so Isaac is motivated by fear. It's interesting, isn't it? That he's trusting the Lord by remaining there, and yet he doesn't trust God enough. He's still afraid of the people. I think all of us can relate to this, can't we? I trust in the Lord, but I'm a little bit afraid of this other thing. Notice how the endangerment of Rebecca parallels that of Sarah, except that it seems there really wasn't any danger for Rebecca. <laughs> Unlike Sarah, she's not taken in anyone's house. In fact, we read in verse 8 that they were in that place for a very long time before this whole lie came out. And unlike the previous incidents with Abraham, there was no plague, there was no dream which reveals the truth to the king. Rather, it's simple observation. Isaac is, is seen exhibiting physical affection 
to his wife. Look at verse 8. Now, in the ESV, the word is translated laughing. Literally, we can translate this way. Isaac was seen Isaacing with his wife. Remember, Isaac's name means laughter. But there's more to this. He's not simply having a, a jovial time. Some translations, I think the King James, James being one of them, uh, uses uh, uh, caressing. Uh, the Septuagint uh, Greek term is to amuse or play. And so the narrative, of course, spares us the details. We're thankful for that. But basically, this is what happens. Abimelech catches Isaac and Rebekah having an intimate moment. A moment which would only be appropriate for a husband and a wife, but not for a brother and a sister. And so all at once he knows, Hmm, you're married. And so once the truth is discovered, the king confronts him. He goes to Isaac. He says, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? How could you do this? Of course, Isaac's response, he indicates his fear. He's afraid of death. If the truth is known, the people might kill me. Well, this is outrageous to Abimelech. And so we ask in verse 10, What is this you have done to us? What have you done to us? One of the people may easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. You see, Isaac's uh, actions may have given occasion for one of the other men to sin. His lie had consequences. His lie may have brought guilt upon the people because the sin of one person has an impact on the whole community. What emerges here is a picture, ironically enough, of a pagan king who seems more moral and more righteous. Unlike in the previous generation where Sarah had been taken into the king's household, no one had disturbed Rebekah. Not even the king had disturbed her. Abimelech's questions recall the same questions which Pharaoh asked Abraham. Again, God is using this pagan king to shame the patriarch. Isaac's lack of faith in the Lord's protection could have had dire consequences on the people of that land. He had sinned against them. He had nearly caused them to stumble. There's a lesson here for us as well as Christians in our walk with Christ, our unfaithfulness before the Lord may too have ramifications for others around us. We're not islands. We're not just, you know, just me and my faith, and I'm just going to do my own thing. And No, what we do is being watched. The unbeliever watches. Even as we stumble in our faith. Abimelech was concerned about what may happen to his people. He's a good king in this sense. He's concerned, what what would happen if they had sinned against Isaac and Rebekah? And so he gives this warning to all the people. Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And so the king provides a blanket protection for Isaac and Rebekah, imposing the ultimate punishment upon anyone who may, may molest them. Death. Again, God, using a pagan king to protect his chosen man. Isn't that amazing? Also, the king is reflecting something of the moral law of God. 
And thus, in some sense, showing himself, even as a pagan, to be more moral than Isaac. Isaac did not need to fear the men, for the Lord was protecting them. He was protecting his wife, and he used this Philistine king to accomplish his will. And so we see here the protection of the covenant people. Genesis also illustrates the blessedness of Isaac. We read that he sowed in that land and then reaped a hundredfold. Now this is an extraordinary amount to reap, particularly in light of the famine in the land. Think about that. The Lord said, I will provide for you. And then he sows and reaps a hundredfold. Moreover, we read that the man became rich, gaining more and more. He became very wealthy. He had flocks, he had herds, he had servants. So the Lord was supplying abundantly all of Isaac's needs, such that he should trust wholly upon the Lord for all his wants. The kind of wealth described here is the same as which characterized the wealth of Abraham. Jacob too would obtain great holdings, although not always through audible means. What makes the abundant harvest all the more remarkable is that it's a hundredfold in the first year. I mean, wouldn't you love to have a hundredfold harvest the first year you planted your garden? It's amazing. And again, during a famine in an arid land. This is clearly from the hand of the Lord. But even as Isaac was blessed... It wasn't that he was without problems. It says the Philistines, though, envied him. They saw the blessings from God and they began to envy him. And so this increase in wealth contributes further to the animosity which was growing between these two burgeoning nations. The envy of the Philistines may explain the reason that they fill in the wells. By cutting off the water supply, they could cut off Isaac's wealth. Cattle, sheep, goats, crops, all of these need that precious commodity of water, particularly in an arid land. But destroying all the wells indicates the immense animosity they had towards Isaac and towards his family. But since these wells are filled only with dirt, they were not able to stop Isaac. They were merely able to slow him down as his servants could just simply redig the wells. And so there needs to be a a solution to expel him. And so this is what Abimelech does. He says to Isaac, go away from us. You are much mightier than we. You know, before Isaac had feared Abimelech. Now Abimelech fears Isaac. Now remember too that Abraham and the previous king had signed a non-aggression pact. But that, is, that, that pact from the previous generation now is effectively negated. This king did not see the value in a close relationship to Isaac, but he rather he was afraid of the power of Isaac. He saw his growth. He saw that he was becoming mighty. The king was also blind to the fact that it was the Lord who was blessing Isaac. Although he will eventually come to his senses... And though he had acted morally before, now he's acting immorally. Now he's acting in clear unbelief. Isaac, though, agrees to leave. He wisely chose not to start a war over the promised land. 
And so he goes to the valley of Gerar and settles there. And he, again, begins to redig wells, the wells that his father Abraham had dug. As they dug in the valley, they found water, springs of water. Literally, in the Hebrew, and also in the Septuagint, it's living water. This, is, this was a prized artisan well, a, a well with subterranean flowing stream. Fresh, wonderful water. This was the best water to find. But when it was discovered, the herdsmen of Gerar began to quarrel with Isaac's men. They said this, that water is ours. Thanks for finding it, but it belongs to us. Now, those of you who have come from the west coast of our country understand disputes over water rights. You understand how precious of a commodity water is. These disputes here, too, recall Abraham's, uh, disp- uh, Abraham's men disputing with Lot's men early in Genesis over water. And because of the dispute over water, Isaac names the well Essek, which means dispute. And so they go and they dug another well. And they have another fight. And so that well is named Sitna, which means accusation. And again, we see ongoing problems, quarreling, fighting. The patriarchs, they're not living at peace in this land. He's trying to water his flocks. He's digging wells, but he's finding roadblock after roadblock and difficulty after difficulty each time. And remember, the Lord promised that he would take care of him. Problems continue to come even to God's people. And so there is yet another well dug. But here, there is no quarrel, and so it is named Rehoboth, which means to make room. Isaac explains it to us. For now, the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Isaac believed God, didn't he? And he knew, eventually we'll find somewhere where the Lord will give us room, Rehoboth. Isaac, in an attempt to save or to have good relationships with his neighbors, continually relinquished control of the wells, and he moved. Isaac's generosity towards the Philistines is somewhat reminiscent of his father's toward Lot. But now, space is finally given to Isaac. God was protecting Isaac. God was providing for him. Even as others were putting pressure on him. Even as he was facing roadblocks and difficulties. So after this, the family of Isaac uh, went up from the hills of the northern Negev to a place called Beersheba, which means the well of seven. Now this was the place of the original non-aggression pact between Abraham and Abimelech. Now again, everything seems to be coming full circle again. Again, there's confirmation of the inheritance. And so here at Beersheba, the Lord again comes to Isaac in a theophany. Verse 24, he says this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply, for my, my, multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Isaac didn't need to fear. The Lord was blessing him. And the Lord was saying, I made this promise to your father Abraham and I will keep this promise. God's word is sure. It is true. 
This is already, Isaac's already seen this though. He's seen it in the protection of his family. He's seen in the reaping of a hundredfold. He's seen it in the enjoyment of his wife. The increase of his herds, his flocks, and his servants. He's seen it in the continued access to water. They continue to, to, to dig wells. Even though they get chased off, they dig another one. And the Lord keeps providing over and over and over again. The Lord gives them room. And that multiplication of his offspring was yet to come, but would come. God will do all these things for the sake of Abraham, his servant. The promises made to Abraham were being applied to the son. And so how does Isaac respond? He responds like his father had before him. He, he, He worships the Lord. Look at verse 25. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Isaac does three things here which demonstrate his determination to remain in the land. First, he builds an altar to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. He worships the Lord in this place. Second, he pitches his tent. He establishes his residence in this place. And his servants dug a well, which suggests his desire to remain there. Abraham's sanctuary at Beersheba now becomes Isaac's sanctuary. And the continued success of Isaac as he resolutely remains in the land the Lord was giving him, again got the attention of Abimelech. Perhaps the king had something of a change of mind concerning Isaac. Or perhaps he thought, you know, this guy really is... There's something really going on here. I better get on the right side of this guy, right? And so he brings along with him his chief advisor, and he brings his, the commander of his army. And they come to Isaac, and of course as they come, Isaac expresses his dismay, and he says this, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me? And you have sent me away. All you've done is chase me around. And and now you're going to come, and why why are you here? The the Philistines have been nothing but hostile towards him. They've they've kept filling in his uh, wells. So the Philistines must now defend their behavior, which, of course, they don't. Rather, what they do is express their recognition of something that they had been bind to before. They say this, We see plainly that the Lord, they say Yahweh, Yahweh has been with you. The Lord is with you. We, we see it now. God's on your team. We better get on your team. What they had not seen before, they now see plainly. Isaac was being blessed by the Lord. Therefore, since the God of the universe is on Isaac's side, they thought it was prudent to make a sworn pact and a covenant together. We better get on your team. We're, we're, on, we're on team Isaac now. In terms of the pact are that Isaac would not do them any harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Now, there is something deliciously ironic about this, isn't it? Because this has not been the case. The Philist- it's not the case that the Philistines have done nothing but good to him and sent him away in peace. Now, I guess you could argue, well, you know, they didn't, att- they didn't send an army after him. Okay. He, w- he was allowed to go without being further harassed in that sense. 
But it isn't the case that they hadn't done, had done nothing but good to him. The, the Philistines, of course, are uh, overstating their case. But, you know, read between the lines a little bit here. Uh, their motivation is fear. They're afraid of Isaac. They're afraid of the Lord, but not in a proper fear of the Lord. They're afraid of what the Lord may do to them. And so what they want is a sworn pact, which would stipulate that Isaac would not do them any harm. And I suppose we could assume that, you know, that Isaac's God would not do any harm to them either. Now Isaac may not have agreed with Abimelech's take on the situation. He doesn't argue with them over it though. But he is willing to make peace. Isaac's actually being sensible here. And so Isaac prepares a feast for them. They eat and they drink. Now this is a typical procedure when it comes to ancient treaties. Uh, Even between superiors and inferiors. Inferiors. Isaac, like Abraham, was equal to a king and in many respects, truly, was their superior. And so there's an exchange of oaths. They parted away, having made peace. Making peace in this way was very wise on Isaac's part. The Lord was with him. Such that the Philistines are forced to sue him for peace. When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him, Proverbs 16.7 tells us. Isaac could now rest at peace knowing that his neighbors had been pacified. The Lord's on his side. The Lord is protecting him, providing for him. He need not worry about Abimelech or any other nation. Now notice too that the same day that the treaty is made, the servants come to him and inform him that they had found water in the well they had dug. What, what great timing huh? In, in the Lord's providence. Again, the Lord is providing. And so the name of that well was called Sheba, which means oath. This is why it's called Beersheba, the well of oath, or the well of seven. It means both of those things. This explanation for the name of the place confirms the name previously given. It had been called Beersheba before. This was the same place that Abraham had made the agreement with the Philistines, and now Isaac has done the same. And so the conflict with the Philistines has been resolved. But this will not be the end of conflict in Isaac's life. We'll see more on that next time. Sometimes it's hard for us to see, or perhaps, maybe I should say it this way, it's very easy for us to forget where our blessings come from. You shouldn't necessarily expect unbelievers to recognize the Lord's hand in our life, but do you recognize the Lord's hand in your life? Do you see how the Lord has blessed and cared for you? Sometimes, though, the unbeliever does recognize it. This was certainly the case with Abimelech. He did recognize God's hand in the life of Isaac, eventually. Isaac heard from the Lord directly, and sometimes he forgot pretty quickly about the promises of God. God has to tell him twice, even. And yet the Lord did remind him. You know, it's not the, it's not the fact that, you know, well, Isaac messed up, so the Lord is just done with him. No, the Lord is so gracious to Isaac, isn't he? Isaac acts foolishly. He sins. 
But he reminds him again of his promises. Isaac, you're my son. I am caring for you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. Well, the Lord reminds us of his promises too. In fact, he does this by his word and spirit. As Christians, we can be assured of his promises to us that indeed we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are, in fact, inheritors of the promises of God, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians. Now, in your life, you're going to experience many providences. Sometimes it's a nice way of saying, many difficulties will come your way. You will experience trials. Some of you, even right now, are experiencing great trial in your life. And the scoffer will come with their scoffing, saying, all things continue as they were from the beginning. But as we have said numerous times, the providences of God do not negate the promises of God. Famine, lack of water, hostile enemies, none of this was going to stop God's plan for His covenant people. God's promises to establish His church in which the gates of hell cannot prevail is not negated by any of those things either. Out of control of federal governments or communist nations like we have in other parts of our world do not negate the promises of God that He will establish His church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. As Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Our Lord Jesus Christ has secured for us, by His death and resurrection, eternal life with Him. We have hope for what is to come in Him, by faith in Him. His promises to us. And we can rest in that. We can be assured in that. That nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Savior said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And He has promised His church that He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Beloved congregation, in this we can have confidence regardless of what may come, regardless of the trials you face, regardless of difficulties which may happen in the world around us. In this we can rest and and take joy and give God all the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises to your covenant people. We thank you that we have been promised eternal life through faith in Jesus. That is by your grace and your abundant mercy that we've been saved. Not because of works done by us, but because you are a loving and gracious God. That you have called us out of darkness into your light. God, help us to rest in your promises. Help us to be refreshed each day by your word and spirit. Help us to take it all joy when we experience trials of various sorts. The trials that were necessary. Trials which are for our good. Knowing that you provide and you protect your people. And that you've given to us the hope of glory. Even looking forward to the, to the new heavens and new earth. 
Help us to rest in your promises. Help us to trust in you. We thank you. And we give you all praise, O God, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.